It has to be said that this is an absolutely enormous subject, and there are sort of literally libraries full of uh, books about this. Um, but in my um, first lecture, I am dealing with a period from which very little actually survives. We often don't know what people had in their houses and how things were shown. But I think we do know enough to bring out some important points about the uses and appreciations of what we would call art. Now, I'm going to use this term art to cover man-made objects that weren't purely utilitarian, things that were made uh, to please the eye as well as to serve the hand. Now, I don't think anybody in the 16th century would have thought of art as we do. It wasn't a sort of category of activity undertaken by artists. There was no, if you like, sort of morality attached to this type of craftsmanship. Making things was a craft, and it was one judged by cr criteria that today we wouldn't necessarily recognise as those uh, which we would define um, art by. So how did they uh, judge things that had been crafted by hand? Well, I think almost certainly the most important criterion that was used to judge how impressive, how important or how beautiful an object was, was quite simply its costliness. If you look at contemporary descriptions, the cost of an object is the thing that is most frequently commented upon, either in admiration, because it's of gold uh, or silver, the content of precious metals was admired, or disparagingly, if it was felt that something looked rather cheap. So cost was the first thing that people took into account in what I suppose we would call aesthetic appreciation. But they were also interested in the craftsmanship of the object, which at the time was described as cunning, the skill with which something was made. And this cunning was equally applied to a dagger, to a fine coat, to a, a gold goblet, or to an alabaster tomb chest. Then the third criteria, I think, was novelty, a much prized uh, characteristic then as it is today. But the hunger uh, for novelty in the 16th century was actually very um, intense, and new forms of decoration, new manufacturing techniques, and new types of object were um, always hungrily sought. And then finally, there was the concept of placement, the relationship that one thing had with another thing. So an incredibly magnificent display of gold plate, uh, which was set on a beautifully carved wooden buffet against a rich tapestry woven with gold, would be regarded as a glittering aesthetic success because of the placement, because of the juxtaposition one to the other. So contemporaries who wrote about what they saw judged everything against cost, cunning, novelty, and placement. Now, if we were to take the example of Cardinal Woolsey's contemporary biographer, uh, George Cavendish, um, he described the splendour with which Woolsey gave um, an entertainment to a French embassy at Hampton Court in 1527. This... Uh, uh, embassy uh, was entertained at Hampton Court for a couple of days before moving on to Greenwich, where the king was going to entertain them. And this is what Cavendish writes, and I quote, The king was privy of all this worthy feast at Hampton Court and intended to far exceed the same, but to describe the dishes, the subtleties, in other words, the desserts, and the many strange devices and order of the same, I do both lack wicked in my gross old head and cunning in my bowels to declare the wonderful and curious imaginations in the same invented and devised. Yet did this uh, entertainment far exceed the same as fine gold doth silver in weight and value. Wonderful and curious imaginations were the mainspring of Tudor art and architecture and were criteria, I think, quite different from those which we apply to art today. Our approach to looking at art today is, to a great extent, uh, based on principles laid down um, in the early 20th century, um, considering uh, art 
and architecture and how each artist and architect has their own personal style that existed within a national style and within a period style. And from this, uh, the identification of personal period and national styles and naming them has been one of the primary activities of art historians. But tonight, we need to start with the point that uh, nobody in 16th century England bothered to sit down and write anything about what they thought about what we call art, let alone what they thought about style in a sense that it could be categorised in a modern sense. So to get some sort of clarity, we have to stop thinking about art and have to start thinking about objects with which the wealthy surrounded themselves. And in doing this, I need to take a step backwards and ask, well, when was it exactly when wealthy men and women of society came to amass beautiful objects which were not only of functional value to them, but were, um, had a decorative purpose? And to do this, I want to start briefly thinking about the men and women who surrounded the monarch in their household. Now, I think there's a very important distinction between a household and a court. A household is an organisation that sort of makes everything possible around you. It cooks your meals. It sort of organises your daily activities. But a court, I think, is a much more amorphous concept because it doesn't have a sort of static membership. It is the people who are around the monarch at any one time. They may, might be his friends, his supporters, but the people were sort of the setting of kingship. They were ornaments to the king's power. So there's a sense of spectacle to a court, whereas a household is more the machinery that makes the spectacle possible. And a com component, I'd argue the crucial component of a court is courtliness, a code of manners and behaviours to which uh, its members subscribe. Now, early medieval kings just simply did not have this. Their closest attendants were tough soldiers used to military action. But during the 14th century, these war bands, which is essentially what they were, gradually became more interested in what we would call the arts, in tapestry, in painting, in poetry, in sculpture, in music. And a sort of macho aversion to these things gradually gave way to a sense of artistic accomplishment. And at the same time, more women uh, were brought into the court, um, uh, softening this sort of rather uh, aggressive mix of people around the monarch. Now, many of these changes you can discern in England perhaps as early as the reign of Henry III, but all of them become a really marked feature in the reign of Richard II. So he's 1377 to 1399. In fact, I think in many ways you can argue that a royal court in a sort of recognisable way uh, to us now sort of begins to exist in his reign. And his was a court that expressed an interest in culture. It comprised women to a much, much greater extent than any previous court. Um, and it could portray itself magnificently um, and uh, had within it um, a series of uh, ranks of um, hierarchy, degrees of status. Richard himself loved to wear his crown. He was preoccupied by ceremony. He loved expensive clothes, priceless personal jewellery, rich food, and, as you see uh, on the screen, this famous, famous portrait done in the um, mid-1390s um, is in Westminster Abbey. Here he is. He loved himself being painted by painters. But this isn't the pa painting I really want to start with this evening. I want to start with a painting that, to my mind, epitomises the court of Richard II best of all. And this, of course, is the Wilton diptych in the National Gallery, one of my personal uh, favourite paintings anywhere in the world. If the National Gallery burnt down tomorrow, it would be this that I'd rushed in and grabbed and carried out. You could actually carry this, of course. Some of the other ones would be a little bit tricky. Um, so these, uh, this, this painting uh, was done as a portable altarpiece 
for uh, the, the Royal Chapel of Richard II. It's painted on um, wooden panels. And you can see there's a sort of heavenly vision. Uh, you can see uh, on the, um, the, the, the left-hand panel here, Richard II being presented by three saints to the virgin and child um, who are in the company of these absolutely delicious angels, 11 of them. And nearest to Richard is his patron saint, John the Baptist. And behind, you see St. Edward the Confessor um, and St. Edmund. Both of these are earlier English kings who had become uh, venerated as saints. Now, this, as you can see from the middle, had hinges on it, and it folded up. And on the outside, you can see that was when it was folded, it had Richard's coats of arms, the left-hand side, and his personal L emblem, of a white heart chained with a crown round its neck on the right-hand leaf. The painting was obviously meant to be looked at from the inside, but it could be folded up, it could be carried about, and when it was, all you would have seen is Richard's badges and symbols. And such heraldry, as you see on the left-hand panel there, of course had started as a system for identifying uh, knights on the field of battle. And during the 13th century, it had become a sort of formal system of visual communication, which was actually policed by the royal um, heralds. The shield, uh, without any supporters, the helm, the crest, together with mottos, badges and seals, then became increasingly used by knights, not only on the field and in the tournament, but every day, to express their knightly status. And it was King Henry III who set the fashion for using such uh, heraldic decoration in the interiors of his buildings. And from that point onwards, uh, if you had arms, you would put them on your possessions. And as with almost everything else, Henry VIII took this to ridiculous lengths. Um, his houses were slathered with heraldic devices, and there were plenty to choose from. Since, in fact, uh, 1198, the royal shield had three crawling leopards, which over the course of time became mysteriously transmogrified into three crouching lions, and then became paired with fleur-de-lis to make the royal arms we're familiar with. And here, you can see this is actually um, Richard III. You can see Richard III's boars being supporters with the crown. And there you can see the classic expression of the royal coat of arms. And uh, Henry VIII uh, was very happy to meld these royal arms with the badges of his wife, Catherine of Aragon. Um, her uh, badge, of course, was a pomegranate. And here you see this wonderful um, uh, woodcut of the marriage, um, not of Henry VIII, but his brother Arthur and Catherine of Aragon uh, with the pomegranate and the Tudor um, rose. But there were lots of uh, ways that the royal arms could be expressed. This is the most gorgeous manuscript in the British Library, um, dating from the early 16th century. And you can see in the bottom panel here, and I will enlarge it, um, here you can see the Tudor uh, coat of arms with the supporters, the the dragon of Catwallader there, and the greyhound, um, in this case supported by angels with the garter um, and the um, crown. Of course, Henry VIII's uh, heraldic painters were kept very busy because as Catherine of Aragon's badges were expunged and replaced by Anne Boleyn, there was a, a quite a big change around, but all too soon, the leopards uh, which were um, Anne's uh, supporters, had to be altered by royal carvers and painters to look like panthers because they were Jane Seymour's beasts. Um, and uh, this particular heraldic problem, as you know, continued throughout the uh, reign. Now, what we have to remember is that heraldry to us today is a mystery. It is obscure. But in the 16th century, it wasn't thought to be either complex or subtle. Putting your arms on a painting, a tapestry, or anywhere on your house or any of your household goods conveyed crucially important messages about your rank and your loyalties. Heraldic symbols in the early 16th century were relatively clean and simple, as you can see here. 
They weren't like um, the later 18th century coats of arms, which you see, which were very, very complicated to reproduce. Um, so these led themselves, lent themselves very straightforwardly to artistic display. It was the royal heralds who were responsible for checking that the correct use of badges and arms um, were, was undertaken. And what they did is they issued to the royal painters uh, and carvers and metal workers books of arms showing how things should be correctly used. So this is um, a, a painting by Thomas Risley, who was Garter King of Arms, who was intimately involved in every uh, major activity in uh, the court in the first half of Henry's uh, reign. He had a workshop in Cripplegate, not far from here, where a team of painters kept all the records that were needed to ensure that everything was done absolutely correctly. And so, during the preparations for a great ceremony like the Field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520, the governor of Guine uh, wrote in a complete panic to Woolsey, asking that uh, Risley should be ordered to produce a book showing all the incredibly complex heraldry necessary for the meeting of the two kings and the decoration of all the things that would be needed. The book doesn't survive, but the very fact that it was commissioned demonstrates the close working between the heralds and the royal craftsmen. Uh, in fact, the king's chief painter, a man called John Brown, worked so closely with Risley, the chief herald, that their workshops were in adjacent houses in Cripplegate. So, uh, royal houses and indeed uh, courtier houses were encrusted with dynastic signs and symbols. Um, and indeed, many of the occupants of the royal houses themselves were encrusted in royal signs and symbols. Everybody from the yeoman of the guard to the Lord Chancellor wearing his heavy gold chain of office. Now, you might not have seen one of these before. This is a stove tile. Uh, bathrooms um, and other small rooms in uh, Tudor royal houses were heated by quite tall ceramic uh, stoves about this sort of height, which were made up of individual tiles. And here you can see um, a royal stove tile uh, with, uh, if you can see, the initials of Henry VIII uh, and Edward, the, um, Prince Edward, HR and ER, the um, fleur de lis here and the Tudor rose. And here we have in the middle um, the Tudor arms with the um, supporters. This is a, uh, a beautiful but uh, a relatively straightforward piece of uh, interior furniture, as you can see, encrusted with um, heraldry. The windows of uh, Tudor royal houses, likewise, this is a piece of uh, royal uh, stained glass from the Victorian Albert Museum, were also um, encrusted in these devi devices, as were um, the objects used at court. Here you see um, a particularly uh, beautiful cup, uh, uh, designed by um, Hans Holbein the Younger, uh, and you can see on the lid the uh, royal uh, crown. And on this cup, which is a slightly later one, um, just to show you that it carried on going, a cup uh, to be presented by, uh, to James I in 1617. Um, you can see in the bottom on the foot, uh, there's a coat of arms there. Um, there's another one here. Um, essentially, that one of the principal vehicles of decoration was, in fact, heraldry. And in fact, entering almost any house of any status, the first thing you would see was a coat of arms. You can see it today if you go to see um, Hampton Court. The royal arms weren't only placed on royal buildings because they explicitly showed to whom you owed loyalty and indeed to whom the house would belong if a royal visit should take place. So this is Compton Wynyard's, um, the um, beautiful, wonderful house uh, built by Sir William Compton, uh, a courtier uh, who held a mass of royal offices under Henry VIII um, in Warwickshire, built in 1523. And here on the porch of his house here 
is um, a huge royal coat of arms, the royal badges either side. So as you walked into the house, it was absolutely clear to whom uh, your loyalty was uh, given. But it wasn't only uh, courtiers. This is uh, a house called Hengrave Hall in Suffolk. It's built in 1525 by a very uh, wealthy London trader, uh, Thomas Kitson. And you can see, likewise, um, he uh, dedicates his house um, and uh, expresses his loyalty to uh, the crown by placing the royal arms on the front of it. And corporations did likely, uh, likewise. Um, here is Trinity College, Cambridge, um, with a statue of the old boy here at the top um, and coats, coats of arms, not only of the king, but of some of his predecessors uh, below. Now, this um, use of uh, heraldry on the complete gamut of decorative uh, objects uh, in houses and the houses themselves was not just a game, because the incorrect or the inappropriate use of arms, particularly anything look, that looked like the misuse of the royal arms, could lead the users into severe danger. The whole system of her heraldry was ruthlessly uh, policed and patrolled by the royal heralds, and their uh, reports could uh, turn what looks to us like an innocent um, decorative device into quite literally a death warrant. Um, in the mid-1540s, Henry VIII became convinced that this man, uh, Henry, uh, Thomas Howard, the Earl of Surrey, was planning uh, to somehow usurp the crown from the future King Edward VI. The matter uh, came to a head when he courted the arms of Edward the Confessor uh, with his own, an act that made his coat of arms look like those of the heir to the throne. Uh, uh, in fact, he was, technically speaking, uh, justified in, uh, in, 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 in doing this, but choosing this particular moment to emphasise his very distant royal connections was not a very good idea. Here is Surrey, as I say, and you can see um, to his left here, and to his right here, incredibly prominently are um, the arms of um, Edward II, that's on the left, and Edward III on the right. And this here is the highly controversial quartering that he uh, undertook. This uh, quartering, which included um, the royal arms in it, uh, led to his arrest um, and his imprisonment, uh, and also the imprisonment of his father, and they were both sentenced to death on the 13th of January 1547 on the charge of treasonably quartering the king's arms. Can you believe that? That is how serious. His father, very luckily, survived execution because the king died the day before um, uh, he was about to have his head cut off. But the son uh, was executed, and here is his uh, tomb chest, and you can see uh, his tomb chest um, contains uh, his arms, including the controversial arms, which by that stage you might as well put them on the tomb because he'd had his head cut off anyway. So this cautionary tale tells us that though heraldry was, as we will continue to see this evening, one of the most important decorative devices of the 16th century, it was not just a game. It conveyed crucial messages about rank and hierarchy and show the way that decoration... Uh, and the hard-edged issues of uh, power, wealth, and rank were intimately uh, entwined. Now, while during the whole of the 16th century, heraldry was never superseded as the primary vehicle for display in everything from gatehouses to domestic tableware. Here is a 16th century um, urn you can see with someone's um, arms on it in the middle. Newer streams of thought and inspiration were becoming available to patrons, designers, and craftsmen from around 1515. We've got to remember that the courts of Henry VII and Henry VIII were actually very cosmopolitan places. The uh, members of the court, most of them were bilingual, 
uh, speaking fluent French. Many of them also spoke Latin. And most of them had traveled abroad to the Low Countries, to France, and many of them uh, as far as Spain. And a very small number had even gone to Italy. And there was a strong sense in the, uh, these courts up until the 1530s that the English were part of the universal culture of Western Christendom. And the city of London uh, was a major centre of trade. And this, of course, reinforced these major international cultural ties. And so there were many arteries through which artistic influences flowed into, uh, uh, into England and particularly into London. But from the mid-1490s, Northern Europe increasingly began to be exposed to fashions from Italy. This was largely due to the fact that the French king, Charles VIII, had invaded Italy, and over a period of 20 years or so, his aristocrats, his diplomats, his merchants and soldiers had helped diffuse across Europe what they had seen in the northern Italian campaigns. And thus, into England, via France and from northern European countries, came an enthusiasm for a new type of decoration known as the antique. This term, which uh, I think you can first identify the first uh, references I've found to it in, in, uh, in the literature uh, around 1513, refers to any uh, type of decoration that draws its inspiration from ancient Rome. And in particular, it referred to a new type of decoration known as grotesque work, which was uh, invented in the last years of the 15th century. This came about um, because in the 1490s, a group of intrepid painters began to break their way into the maze of underground passages and caverns that made up the buried remains of the Domus Aurea, the golden house of the Emperor Nero. And this, through smoking torches, is what they found painted on the ceilings of these Roman interiors. The golden house was a megalomaniac building project that made Henry VIII's buildings look positively puny. Um, it was a vast villa set in landscape gardens covering 300 acres, um, and it was described by the ancient Roman historian Suetonius as ruinously prodigal. But these, until these explorers found their way into these buried rooms, nobody had ever seen the decorated interior of Roman buildings before. But painters like Pinturicchio, by the light of their burning torches, found this incredible wonderland. And they turned it into a new form of contemporary interior decoration. Here is Pinturicchio's um, uh, library in Siena, uh, the Piccolomini Library. Um, and you can see the way that uh, he was uh, uh, inspired by the use of Roman masks and vessels and shields and plates and helmets and breastplates, most often linked together by a sort of crazy candelabra into a sort of tottering tower of treasure, normally framed by putty and swirling um, foliage. And by the 1500s, this stuff, which we call grotesque work, and hopefully you can sort of see the sort of candelabra effect here, sort of running up the middle, it's on a, on a sort of stalk here, um, became uh, all the rage. And so here you see an English painting. This, of course, is uh, Archbishop Cranmer, um, painted by the German painter Gerlach Flick. And I hope you can see uh, on the left-hand side, um, this pillar here contains uh, one of these grotesque work uh, uh, um, tiers um, of, uh, of, of swirling um, vessels and masks and breastplates, etc. Now, in disseminating this fashion, printing was hugely um, important. And from the 1460s uh, in England, craftsmen of all sorts were using printed sheets and books as an inspiration for uh, bringing this grotesque work into uh, a people's, uh, uh, upper-class people's um, homes. Uh, most of these books um, were produced in Germany, uh, or some, some in France. But in 1504, um, Henry VII appointed Richard Pinson 
to be his official printer. And in 1518, Pinson produced uh, the first English title uh, uh, with uh, grotesque decoration up the side here, commissioned by Henry VIII, this um, uh, very first printing um, here. And from this point onward, prints became the fundamental source of inspiration and everything, stone carving, stained glass, textiles, metalwork, was influenced by these prints. Even the great Holbein himself, as he's painting uh, the Whitehall mural, this uh, decoration up here comes, uh, is taken from printed sources uh, uh, acquired um, from, um, from Germany uh, or, or France. And here you see that um, lovely writing desk in the v uh, You may be familiar with this, uh, probably belonged to Henry VIII. And uh, all the decoration you can see on this wonderful piece uh, of furniture here uh, is taken from um, printed sources. And so enterprising designers and printed, printers collected together uh, these designs um, and they issued them in uh, pattern books. There's a very nice introduction to one of these books in, uh, printed in 1538. And um, it says in, in the front as an introduction to this, and I, I quote, it says, I have assembled an anthology of exotic and difficult details that should guide the artists who are burdened with wife and children and those who have not travelled. Sort of equivalent disadvantages in life. Um, and so both patrons and artists owned these books. And it's quite easy to find quite a number of things that are influenced by them. Here's this great Tudor house, Elizabethan house in Northamptonshire. This is Kirby Hall. And uh, you can see these giant pilasters here, um, incredibly detailed uh, carved um, decoration, which is taken directly from the front page uh, uh, of this uh, book here, The First and Chief Grounds of Architecture by John Shute, published in 1587. Um, um, and uh, if we look um, again at this uh, stove tile, we will see the way that... Uh, these grotesques have come in either side. Um, and if you see the cup design, you can see that essentially this is uh, uh, based on um, grotesque work, as in fact, indeed, is the decoration in the painting of Thomas, Earl, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, Thomas Howard. Now, the way that these new streams of decoration um, came in are a key to understanding how tastes changed in the Tudor period. But so far, I have been speaking about decoration. I now want to move on uh, to the most important and admired art form of the age, which was tapestry. Now, we have to remember this very important point, and that is that textiles and plate were the two things that were most admired uh, in Tudor um, interiors. Uh, and this is given great weight by this wonderful uh, drawing, a very, very rare drawing. This is a drawing by Holbein showing uh, Thomas More and his family at home. Hardly any accurate uh, illustrations survive of a Tudor interior. And what is very noticeable about this interior is there's lots of plate. Can you see here? Plate there on the buffet. Plate here, that's on the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, plate uh, of course, they're all then wearing lots of jewels, wonderful textiles, textiles handing on, hanging on the wall, not a painting to be seen anywhere. Because for the modern eye, the single biggest impact that we would have felt on entering the house of a rich 16th century courtier or a royal palace would have been the huge quantity of tapestry. In the early 16th century, most of this was woven in the Low Countries, either bought off the peg from merchants or, if you were very rich, specially um, commissioned. The quality varied uh, enormously. The best stuff, as you can see in this detail here, was shot through with gold and silver thread. It was known as arras. Um, and um, very few people, other than the king and the most uh, wealthy uh, bishops, would, uh, would own this. Uh, but even uh, for contemporaries, rooms hung with arras would have been incredibly arresting. 
Most tapestry was less glitzy and less valuable and was woven with varying mixtures of silk uh, and wool. Um, so wool tapestry you could buy for about eight pence an L, and L is 27 inches. Um, silk was a bit more expensive. It was three shillings and four pence an L. And if you wanted to buy a ras, it was 40 shillings an L. So this is incredibly expensive stuff. But tapestry was always integrated with the architectural features in a room and was, uh, as I said, either made for the room if you were rich, uh, uh, certainly in the case of um, Arras, um, but otherwise, if you weren't so rich, you would buy your tapestry and you would design your room around it. It hung from a, a cornice, and uh, as it met the floor, you usually, usually had a, a black painted skirting, so you couldn't see a sort of glimpse of white, rather like a sort of pale sock underneath the end of your trousers. You wouldn't want to, uh, uh, it, that, that, the wall to peek out at the, at the bottom. Um, but at the start of the reign, uh, rich patrons hung and bought tapestries in the prevailing style, which was for incredibly dense um, uh, 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 compositions. Compositions crammed with very large numbers of figures. And this is a very good example of the, the, the fashion for tapestry in the first part of Henry VIII's reign. This is the story of King David, part of a set, a very expensive set he bought in uh, 1528. It cost £1,548, uh, which is about the same amount as mo of money as the Mary Rose cost, fully equipped with all its guns. So that is quite expensive. It was a very big set. There were 10 pieces. It covered 420 square yards. So um, a tennis court is, is about 300 square yards. So these tapestries are vast. Um, and uh, this um, great uh, set of, of the story of King David uh, were, was hung um, in the English royal palaces. But by the time it was delivered in 1528, it was very old-fashioned because uh, fashion had moved on. And here you see uh, a set of tapestries that Henry VIII acquired 10 years later in 1538. And this is the story of St. Paul in nine scenes. Another incredibly uh, rich weave laden with gold thread. Uh, and it was valued uh, at the king's death at £3,000, the cost of two warships. Now, here you can see, I think, a startling, startling change in style. Startling, I think, to people at court. And it must have indeed changed the whole feel of, uh, of Tudor uh, rooms. These tapestries were less oppressive, more three-dimensional, much more exciting. And these big-scale tapestries began to be set in interiors that were redecorated to meld together the traditional design elements, like heraldry, with grotesque work. And there is just one interior that you can get a flavour of this in, and that is uh, at St James's Palace uh, in the Tudor Chapel there. And you can see that the ceiling, there are no tapestries here now, but there were, uh, you can see on that ceiling um, the grotesque work, uh, painting, um, and that is uh, uh, joined up with uh, other panels with, um, with heraldic um, uh, uh, words. You can see there, vivat rex. Um, you can see there, there's, there's a dieu émondois in there, so there, there's heraldry next door to it. So the interiors of these houses begin to um, uh, morph, if you like, to, into a state where they um, can accept these, these new dynamic type of designs. Well, combining antique work and heraldry with the existing vocabulary of architectural design really required a new set of skills. And so as well as native craftsmen, craftsmen and designers came from all over Europe. They were mainly uh, Northern European, um, uh, but there were some from um, Italy, um, and uh, even though the uh, Italians came here, they tended to employ French or German uh, assistants. Um, but the Italians did bring a different quality to uh, design. Um, Cardinal Woolsey, of course, had employed the sculptor Giovanni de Maiano in the early 1520s, um, and he had supplied these terracotta roundels of Roman emperors, 
um, for Hampton Court, um, and Henry VIII later commissioned more of these um, for St. James's, Greenwich, Whitehall, and courtiers uh, also took uh, um, terracotta uh, grotesque work in um, dozens and dozens of, uh, of houses. Uh, another Italian, Nicholas Bellin of Modena, seems to have brought the use of moulded stucco work into fashion uh, at court. And of course, this was extensively used uh, in Henry VIII's last building work at Nonsuch. But what I think is critically important to remember is that this rich stream of decorative and artistic ideas flowing from Europe into England was abruptly cut off as Henry VIII broke with Rome. There were huge consequences for this, and the Reformation became a powerful force for decorative change um, as much as change in many other um, spheres. Henry VIII's quarrel, of course, hadn't been with traditional religion. His quarrel had been with the Pope, and it led to this assertion, this unique assertion, that England was an empire, a realm without any superior on earth, um, a notion that was enshrined, of course, in the Act of Supremacy in 1534. And it was only really through uh, Thomas Cromwell that the process began um, to lead to theological, uh, a theological reformation, um, which was driven through under a clique of Protestant politicians in the reign of um, uh, Edward VI. And so by the time we enter the reign of Queen Elizabeth, we have not only a political, but we have a religious break with Europe. And this stopped the import of ideas from Catholic countries. And the Italianate grotesques of the first half of the century began to morph into something different, a new decorative craze that we know as strap work. The most prominent uh, uh, expression of this was first uh, in the Galerie Francois Premier at Fontainebleau, um, just outside Paris. And you can see um, here some, some, some strap work um, uh, on the walls. Um, and this uh, decorative device was borders of writhing, twisting leather belts or straps, which then magically turned into faces, animals, buckles, and studs to become a sort of bizarre, sort of partially comic world um, that echoed the paintings of uh, Bosch and Bruegel, um, their, uh, their contemporaries. And of the various designers who worked in this idiom, by far the most influential in England, was the very uh, prolific and talented um, Jan Fredeman de Frey's. Um, and you see one of his um, designs here, and hope you can see that sense of um, the sort of the writhing and twisting and buckling and the way uh, these straps magically turn into one thing and then disappear and appear somewhere else. Um, and these uh, designs by uh, de Vries um, were widely circulated and again started to feed into interior uh, decoration. Here is the screen at Montacute House in Somerset, which is entirely made up of elements from de Vries's books. And uh, the mind-boggling overmantel um, in the Red Lodge in Bristol, um, built in the 1580s and early 90s, um, uh, also, the, uh, the elements here, including this big cartouche in the middle, is just simply directly copied from uh, a print by de Vries. And here, uh, to give you uh, uh, another example of the use of strap work, is the Mostyn Salt. This is a whacking great piece of metalwork, uh, one of the biggest uh, surviving from its age. It's made in 1586 to 7 uh, in London. Uh, and you can see that on this uh, piece, the framework is made up of, um, of strap work filled in with various lively motifs and plants uh, uh, and animals. Now, it is no coincidence that I have so far barely mentioned easel painting. Let's return to the family of St. Thomas More. You will not see any paintings hanging on his walls, nor will you see a painting in Queen Elizabeth I's withdrawing chamber, because the fact was that easel painting was not a particularly prestigious form of craft or decoration in 16th century England. One of the main themes of my next lecture 
will be its rise in importance. But for now, we need to remember that plate and textiles were infinitely more prized than painted boards, even painted boards by a great genius like Holbein. One of the issues was that painting was, for many Calvinists, a problematic and potentially ungodly art. Not only was there a risk of idolatry, which ruled out all religious subjects, apart from this one, my favourite uh, painting. This is the four evangelists stoning the Pope, um, <laughs> which clearly was not um, uh, idolatrous. Um, but there was also this danger that painters could be accused of copying God's creation. God's creation was perfect, and there was no need to replicate it or try and improve it. And therefore, there were waves of iconoclasm that destroyed huge numbers of easel paintings, triptychs, and wall murals in the 1520s and 30s, and another wave that happened again in the 1540s. Um, and as a result, huge amounts of, uh, of religious painting and other paintings that existed in pre-Reformation England just disappeared. By, Ing by Elizabeth's reign, it was realised that, um, as it recognised, that used in a secular context, an image of a man or a woman for representational, for civic or decorative use was acceptable. And even in churches, uh, there were now monuments that were really representative of people. In fact, a writer in the 1590s could say, and I quote, now every citizen's wife that wears a taffeta kirtle and a velvet hat must have her picture hanging in the parlour. Now, this was exaggerated, but what is certainly the case was that by the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign, it wasn't only royal and aristocratic houses that contained portraits, but also the houses of wealthy merchants. Although there were very few painters who created what we would regard as great works of art, like Hans Ueth, Isaac Oliver, Nicholas Hilliard, many of uh, the lesser painters concentrated on trying to achieve a likeness. And these likenesses were most often uh, commissioned to commemorate an event in a person's life, and the yardstick that was used wasn't some level of artistic achievement, but whether the picture looked like its subject. So here is the portrait of the 37-year-old Hebrew scholar and divine Hugh Broughton in Christ College, Cambridge. It was painted to commemorate the, first, the publication of his first book, which he holds in his hand in 1588, and his position as tutor to a wealthy family. And you can see all the things you'd expect. Uh, the book, which he's doing, a pair of gloves to show that he's a, 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 a gentleman, his coat of arms, more books, the date, uh, his age, the year. This contains a huge amount of information. These paintings conveyed information about the sitter, their likeness, their status, their interests, their achievements, their age. And it was for this reason that Elizabeth I tried to start to control portraits of herself. Yes, of course this was partially motivated by vanity, but portraits that contained information could also contain misinformation. And the Privy Council was ordered by the Queen to seek out bad portraits of herself and have them burned. She was then uh, asked them to ensure that any new portraits were approved by the sergeant painter. The solution to this uh, state control of images of the Queen was to produce an official likeness and then license people to copy it. This uh, was not particularly easy, as uh, the Queen was extremely reluctant to sit for a portrait. Unlike Queen Elizabeth II, who has been painted by hundreds of people, Elizabeth I, as far as we know, only actually sat uh, in, in life for five painters. Nevertheless, there was a very urgent need to produce portraits of the Queen. She, of course, had been excommunicated by the Pope in 1570, and the display of a royal portrait was a gold-plated symbol of loyalty, uh, one that many felt uh, good to insure themselves with. You could buy a reasonably good likeness of Elizabeth I for around £10. And this meant that most families of any substance probably had a portrait of the Queen, 
and the, the aristocracy um, had probably several portraits um, around which their family portraits might be hung. Now, I am deliberately showing you here um, a middle-of-the-road Elizabethan uh, portrait. It's a variant of one of the many official versions painted towards the end of the 16th century, and it perpetuates the official, ageless image of the Queen that had become fixed as the official, official iconography by that date. The face uh, is angular, uh, it's a sort of mask-like icon, and her torso is uh, dazzled by a mass of jewellery, pearls, uh, embroideries. And images such the, as these, produced in great numbers, um, uh, re represented the loyalty of the subject, um, and they were um, objects of near-religious uh, devotion. Now, as I've suggested um, this evening, um, the things that we um, consider to be art today had meanings and powers in the 16th century that we now have to decode. It's for this reason that I think there have been quite a lot of misunderstandings about the consequences of the great wealth and power of um, many subjects. Uh, the fall of Cardinal Wolsey uh, on the left there is very often um, attributed to his overblown architectural ambition and to the, his gargantuan appetite for um, tapestry and, uh, and plate and other beautiful objects. But I think to see it this way is to fundamentally misunderstand the situation. Because uh, in the 16th century, uh, subjects of the highest rank were not only permitted, but were encouraged to amass huge amounts of what we would describe as art and place it in their um, great buildings. Um, on the right-hand side of this uh, screen, you can um, see uh, uh, William um, Wareham, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, from 1503 to 1532, and he was also large cha Lord Chancellor. He doesn't get a look-in um, in the story because Cardinal Wolsey is so famous and sort of falls because of his wealth, supposedly, Wareham arguably was richer than Wolsey. And, of course, when you go into the reign of Queen Elizabeth, Lord Burley didn't build one, but two absolutely enormous houses. You've got Tibbles, which is now gone, which was far bigger than Burley House, and if you've been to Burley House, you know how big that is. These houses were far larger far more spectacular than anything that Elizabeth I had ever built, and many of the contents of Tybalt's would have um, equaled the magnificence of the possessions of the Queen. But these things were expected, and they were enjoyed by Elizabeth. They weren't resented or stopped by her. It was only when the accepted hierarchy was subverted or challenged, as in the case of the Earl of Surrey, when there was a problem. So my talk this evening uh, forms an introduction to how the Tudors thought about what we call art. There was no hushed veneration for artworks or artists, merely the question of what the craftsman could do for the patron. These uh, craft objects were appreciated for their beauty, but they were importantly created for a symbolic meaning. Next time we shall see how that began to change and how craft began to turn into the art and what that art tells us about 17th century society. Thank you very much. <laughs>